Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we are happy this week uh, to be joined by former Canadian tennis player and very well-established ATP and WTA coach. He's also one of the most creative and entertaining minds in the sport. Uh, Rob Steckley, thanks so much uh, for joining this week and coming back on the podcast. Yeah, boys, thanks for having me. Hey, let me just, let me ask you this. Is that all written down or off the top of your head? Because you get bonus <laughs> points if that just uh, it's, off the it's, top. It's 90% off the top of my head with a couple point form notes. Right, so we're still friends. All right, good. <laughs> Ben's done the lead in on the podcast for so many years now that uh, it doesn't matter who he's talking to. It's, uh, it's smooth with or without notes. Appreciate that. Rob, right. hey, you know what? What yeah. would work best if I put uh, these guys in? Does that like help? Well, that sounds better. Yeah. Okay. Done. All right. Yeah, that sounds great. Cool. Rob, welcome back. It's great to have you on the podcast again. Um, I can tell by your Instagram post lately, you're in a much warmer, much uh, nicer uh, environment than we are up here in <laughs> Toronto. Um, so tell us what's uh, 2021 been like for, for you and the fam these days and uh, what, what projects have you been up to lately? Oh, I mean, yeah, I had to make a, you know, a close exit because I had to leave Toronto recently because the winter was just too much for me to handle. I don't even know how to explain it. I think I was brought up right with, you know, the, the colder climate and then you spend more than Christmas in Toronto and you realize that winter isn't cut out for you. So I, I ended up in, in Miami, but the family's good. You know, I miss them. They're back in, in Toronto, but, uh, you know, it started off as, uh, you know, an opportunity, an idea to get to uh, Miami because I, I've been working with the uh, cross family, which I adore. I, I, you know, it's been a project for almost four years now. And, uh, yeah, it kind of presented itself just because, you know, everything's in lockdown and we were going to my cottage one too many weekends and I started running out of ideas how to keep the kids happy. So uh, we uh, jumped on a flight and made our, our way to Miami. So here we are. I run out of ways to keep my kids happy on a daily basis. So that's relatable. And uh, this is the first winter I don't want to escape because we built a little rink in our backyard. So I actually don't want winter to end because that's been a source of a lot of entertainment for us. Um, yeah. Isn't it, isn't it crazy how, how, you know, there's so many positives that come out of this, you know, tragic disaster that's happened. Um, but I built, you know, it's funny. And here's a story, quick story. Uh, I built a skating rink. I had worked endlessly, like tirelessly, um, because I was doing everything manually with buckets. I didn't do the smart way where I actually put down the lining. I had, you know, a proper setup. So I was doing water on brick and hoping it freezes quick enough so that I could build up the ice. But mind you, I did it. It took about six days of, you know, from morning when it's extremely cold midday kind of gets a little bit warmer and then at night and then all throughout the night I'd stay up and I'd have you know the, the afternoons with my kids and we'd play and then um you know I, I jumped on a flight I came to Miami my wife and kids are still in Toronto uh and the uh, ice is melted so all that work went you know down the drain because my wife didn't keep up that hard work <laughs> gee I wonder why with the kids eh? it's uh <laughs> 
<laughs> hey, oh, we wanted yeah. to uh, we wanted to make this episode, Rob, a little bit of a sort of examination of your time as a, a coach and and pick your brain on on what it's like to coach on both the men's and, and women's tour. And so I wanted to start with, you know, when you're looking to start a partnership with a with a player, how does that normally begin? Is it kind of like when you're you know looking to ask someone out on a date, like that kind of pressure? <laughs> who asks who? Who makes the first move? What, what's it kind of like behind the scenes to get something like that started? Well, I mean, I'll start from the beginning. Uh, and you have a good point because that's actually a funny analogy. Uh, at the very beginning, when you're trying to get your feet wet, it is kind of like asking somebody on a first date. Um, you know, you don't have the upper hand. So you're, you're, you're putting yourself out there. You're trying to get as much exposure as possible. And you hope for the best. And, and luckily in my scenario, you know, it, it went from a Wozniak who uh, is now, you know, she was an established player who became a wonderful coach, um, which led to other partnerships. And, and fortunately for me, I didn't have to do as much, uh, uh, you know, the groundwork where I had to put myself out there. It kind of led, you know, from one gig to another, but um the important thing to take from that and for anybody listening that was looking for that uh, to lead to, you know, potentially a career is, uh, you know, when you're out there and you have an opportunity, you have to see the moment as much as possible to make as many friends, as many connections um, and to make the world know you exist, whether, you know, that's making a funny video or making a splash on the tennis court or both. Uh, they, they both lend hands to each other. And, and that's pretty much how, you know, the system works out there. You got any stories of getting shot down hard, like just crashing and burning <laughs> when, when approaching the pool? <laughs> well, I have tons of, you know, scenarios like that, but uh, they weren't directly related to me asking a player to work with them. I've, you know, I don't know if it's a, it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I've never wanted to actually be that person that have, that had to actually ask somebody. And even if I want, because there's a number of players that I always, you know, would say, Oh, I'd love to work that type of player or person. Um, but I've never put myself out there, you know, you know, whether it's probably me being a weak, you know, individual being too vulnerable. I don't know what it is, but uh, I've just never had the opportunity to where I've actually put myself in that scenario. Um, but I know that, uh, it is, you know, some, it's reality for a lot of people. And, and uh, yeah, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. It's uh, interesting to hear you talk about networking because I think in the world of business and so many fields, uh, as people branch into careers, we, we all hear about networking and it's who you know. And uh, here it is, you know, translating to the coaching world. But you, you yourself as well, I guess, you know, you had been an established player uh, with, with a solid career. How much did that help you, I guess? I guess when your career ended, um, did you had, have confidence in yourself to kind of enter this field just because you knew the sport so well? Well, that's, you know, that's a great question that I complete, like completely respect. It's, it's something that I think about often, you know, it's, it's, you know, and I find this podcast, it's great because I hope people are actually listening that want this type of information, because that question um, was something that I asked myself, uh, you know, when I first start stopped and 
you know, it plays a huge, you know, helping hand that, uh, you know, you have, you know, a career that uh, will give you opportunity. And there's different tiers of, uh, you know, if you were, you know, a top 10, you know, megastar, you're going to get opportunities on all levels. And, you know, for me, I think that uh, putting myself out there and making sure that uh, I was committed at the very end to, you know, having a good career. Um, I was presented opportunity, but I had to go out and make sure that I figured out which path I wanted to take. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that's of importance for anybody that's looking for that transition. It's which avenue do I take, whether it's uh, high performance, on tour, uh, country club, you have to make those, you know, those things clear when you first stop playing and, and trying to transition. And so for me, uh, I had a, a ton of opportunity and, and that was something that, uh, I'm grateful for, but I also worked hard for it. Um, and you know, my friends always say, well, if you don't make it to coach, <laughs> so I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what, if that's a, you know, should be grateful or I didn't do it as well as I should have, but um, it definitely plays a helping hand in, in, uh, you know, trying to figure out what opportunities come next. But, uh, you know, for anybody that even if they're not at the stage where they've had a tennis career, they can always, you know, create something out of whatever they've done. It's just more about putting themselves in the right place at the right time. And it's always high performance. So, you know, for me, and I, I speak about high performances, that's, uh, that's pretty much what I know, but uh, yeah, I had a lot of uh, opportunity that was given after the fact that uh, I stopped playing. Just a, a follow-up to that, more specifically into coaching and just looking at some of the players, obviously you've worked with, Pavlo Chenkova, Lucy Safarova, you had time with Denis Shapovalov. Um, your coaching style, um, are you adapting to the player? Is the player adapting to you or do you kind of learn pretty pretty early on if something is a fit or not i would think that you would you know you'd understand if it was a fit or not you know from the get-go but but it's it's never player trying to transition into fitting in with you they might try a little bit but you know the goal from you know coach player relationship is always a coach trying to figure out their player and and not vice versa so you know whenever i transition from you know a player to a next player i always do my due diligence i always make sure going into it you know and you use you know it's it's not transitioning from one player and the very next day you start with the next so i try to make sure i understand the player where where they come from their you know their upbringing and and everything that sits around them current state and past and that will kind of tell me where I need to go uh, as a personality to get used to what, uh, you know, what lies ahead and what, where I can take things. So um, it's just, it's extremely important as a, a, a coach to make sure that uh, you're a chameleon and you are very capable of adapting to, to whatever comes next. And, and I think for a lot of coaches, it doesn't really matter which player is there. They, they, they will try their best to accommodate. Um, I'm a coach that 
doesn't take all opportunity because I just don't feel me changing my personality and structure will fit, you know, the benefit. I think it just won't benefit the player as well because I won't have as much fun at doing it. And then it becomes some sort of job and task that I need to do more than I have to. So I try to, you know, I try to stick to the people that really understand what they're kind of getting into. And then we take it from there. So, so is that like from day one? Because you've got a very, um, how should I put this? Unique. Don't, hey, be easy. Right? Be easy. Eh? <laughs> unique. Be careful. Personality and, and one that Ben and I love. And that's why we, we enjoy having you on the podcast with us, of course. And, and you and I have chatted a bunch this year. And I appreciate those conversations too, off the record. But what I mean is, you know, do you start day one? Hey, this is who I am. You know, like, take it or leave it. I'm going to be myself from the get-go. Or, mm-hmm. you know, like I've, I've done a lot of teaching. And I don't, I don't start on day one being, you know, what I'm going to be like on day 30 or, or, you know, day 200 or what have you. Um, but maybe it's a little different teaching and coaching uh, in that sense. So how do you play that when you start a new, you know, coaching player relationship? I mean, it's like you brought up at the beginning, you know, it's, it's like a date. Like, do you go full in at the very beginning and scare the person off or do you <laughs> ease your way in? <laughs> like, I, I I try not to hide anything, but I wouldn't go, you know, a hundred percent all in. That's just my character. You know, I don't think any person would just show up and just go off the wall from the very beginning. So I think there's this state of easing into something, but I definitely don't try to hide anything. Um, And like I said, I, or you said, you know, and you brought up a good point is, is the fact that I, I am quite unique in the sense that there there may be a lot more of us that that have the same coaching style but don't put um us on the front line and i i'm just not shy to to kind of just be myself from the very beginning so i think that that plays into the confidence of who i am and what i do and i think the players feel that so from the very beginning, I think they already know what they're getting into. And it's just a matter of me, you know, fine tuning when and where, you know, to pick the pace up a little bit on my personality and, and, or maybe shave it down a little bit, but uh, yeah, I don't think I try to hide anything. Your personality is, is really helpful. It, uh, I feel like bringing a lot out of the players you work with and, you know, you've done not only a great job coaching, but also marketing and promoting the athletes that you've, you've coached over the years with some pretty epic uh, video content. And so for anyone who's not familiar with what I'm talking about, just, you know, go to YouTube and, and look up Rob Stackley and there's some great stuff out there. Have you got a favorite little promo or, or spot that you've put together with any of the players you've worked with? I mean, for me, I really like the one you did uh, with Lucy, uh, what, what it was like to be on the WTA over 30. Uh, and there was another right. one with, with Nastia where you were like going through all these like almost village people costume changes as she was, <laughs> practicing for the u.s open right have you got a favorite one that stands out over over the years you know what not really they all stand you know equal in my opinion just because they 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 possess a certain you know piece of my my life that is I I guess gelled in that moment. And, and that's what I love about creativity. And that's what I love about being able to be at on 
out on tour and, and work with a number of players and have access to, you know, the things we do and then being able to, you know, be myself and put that out there. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that there's any one more important than the other or that any of them stand out more. I just, I, you know, I've, I have a certain bond with every single one of them and an, an attachment. And when I go back, they're memoirs, you know, I, I look back and, and I have fond memories of, of all those moments. And they're also cringe to look back to because <laughs> the level that I, I was doing, you know, three years ago, my, and I call it a career, you know, uh, you know, in my, you know, my film career, it's just, astonishing how shit i was <laughs> <laughs> it must uh, also be great to to look back uh, on fond memories of watching your players for example you know win big matches come through in big moments and i think about the element of coaching that maybe is not really talked about is you know pressure on the sidelines because we, we talk about all the pressure that uh, the player is facing in that moment and, you know, a player wins, they build confidence, they win more. The flip side is wearing a loss. You lost and you lose and, you know, the confidence is hurting and that's going to hurt your chance in later matches. Do you feel that way sometimes as a coach? Like so much is kind of riding on these results and it is one of those professions where job security is just, you know, yeah. border borderline non-existent. Well, I mean, I feel that, every match it's not even every match it, it if you break it down you know to reality it, it, it's it's on a if daily type thing when you're trying to micromanage practices uh you know every practice counts every practice set counts every point and and win and and transition like that counts because you're building momentum so um you know, we always, we always hear the coach talk about, or even the player talk about, you know, building for the future. Um, but it's not as simple as that because from a coach's perspective, I can assure you that there, unless I'm an alien and I'm the only one feeling this, it's, it's intense and like an immense type of pressure on a daily when you first wake up to make sure that every day runs as smooth as possible on and off court. So when you're sitting there in the, you know, what you see on TV is like the final chapter, that's just a piece of the puzzle, you know, and that's like the, the, the report card at the end of the day. And, and if they lose that match, there's so many different factors that play into the importance of that. So, um, you know, I try to really micromanage everything on a daily just to make sure that my player really feels that. And like I said, I'd be crazy to think that I'm the only one, but uh, I think great coaches feel that on a, a, a you know, on a constant uh, repetition every single day, just because, you know, that's the, you know, the sign of perfection. You want the player to feel as good as possible. Um, you know, and, and what people see it from the outside when they lose a match is it's, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's hard, but um, I think it starts way before that. So the pressure there, what you're talking about is happening at every single practice, even talks in the morning at breakfast, um, everything that you do has a profound effect on the end result. 
So you have to make sure that you're very uh, aware of everything that's happening. And the more you're aware of that, um, the easier it gets to manage. And then of course, at the end of the day, if they, they end up taking an L, uh, you know, you have answers and you're, you're able to express why you feel that might've been the reason. So at least from my alien perspective. That's <laughs> <laughs> such, a, such a detailed perspective. And uh, no, that, that brings up the point that we, we don't see kind of how much goes in, of course, but before one of these big matches, um, just transitioning to, you know, we are a Canadian podcast and uh, love talking Canadian tennis. You had the chance sure. to work to work with Dennis. Um, Felix is another young star and uh, just made the fourth round of the Australian Open. We have Bianca kind of returning, Layla on the women's sides, like a lot of young talent. Um, mm-hmm. for, for you, if you're working with one of those younger talents, for example, Dennis, um, how does that differ than say, if you're working um, with a, a more veteran player who's, who's been on the tour for a solid number of years? Well, you know, working, well, yeah, I started working with more of a veteran, you know, type scenario and I stayed with that and it, it presents its own challenges. Uh, and what I mean by that is the fact that, you know, they're wanting more because they know they can either achieve or they may understand that it's the end of the road. So you have different pressures. Now, when you work with somebody that's, you know, fresh talent, like our young Canadians and Dennis, when I was working with them, there's a totally different uh, approach to the way you have to view things as a coach because they they have had success early on in the juniors, or they might've had a quick transition into the pros and now they've gained success, but they're super young and they need to understand that tennis is now the next nine years or 10 years of their life. And um, the understanding and the mental capacity that they need to now shift into being a more mature type of human being and understanding that, you know, things aren't what they used to be is completely different. And they have, you know, a ton of people on their team that also doesn't really understand things. So, you know, you see that whether it's Canadian, whether it's, you know, Russians, Swiss and Australian, and I could, you know, German, it doesn't matter. It, it, it just, anybody that comes bursts onto the scene and, and has a lot of success early um, also has to understand the way the patterns are with tennis. So uh, for me, it was, it was interesting working with Dennis just because uh, it, he had an extreme amount of talent. He has a ton of game. He's probably going to dominate the tennis scene, but um, you know, this, this sudden urge, to now want to do better, faster, quicker, um, without the realization that there is a path and, you know, a set tone to everything. And it's the maturity of how one kind of progresses. So, um, working with somebody that's seasoned, and this is going full circle to the beginning, they already understand this. So when you're working with somebody that already has gone through this, you don't need to explain to them that it's a race. You know, it's, you know, what we set out to do 
today is the direction for tomorrow. When you're working with somebody that's, you know, it's fairly new or very new to them, they, they don't understand that. You could try to explain to them a thousand times and until they go through that process, they will not understand, nor will anybody unless, you know, they've gone through it. So that's the big difference. So it's a challenge whether you work with somebody that's a vet and, you know, trying to get them to change old habits or a new uh, up and coming player to get them to buy into the next 10 years of their career. Rob, if, uh, if memory serves me correctly and it might not, cause I've got what I like to call dad brain. So I can't even remember. Stuff I have that to too. Yeah. No, no. yesterday, <laughs> but um, when you parted ways with, uh, with Nastya Pavlyuchenkova at the end of last season, um, I believe you said it was it was amicable, but on, on your side of things, it was just kind of like balancing the, the travel with the family life and, and maybe the pandemic played into it as well. Mm-hmm. Are you itching to get back? I mean, I know you're still coaching um, at the moment with some some youngsters, uh, you know, Canadian youngsters. Are you itching to get back into the coaching game at the at the professional level? Is there anything sort of, you know, in the works on that uh, horizon for you right now? Well, the easiest way to put it is I adore traveling. I love work out on the road. I love it at any level, but especially at, you know, the top level. Um, So I'm always itching to get back out there, but I, you know, I just turned 41. I have a beautiful family. Um, When is it time to take more time for my family to really focus on them. And I think that's the transition I'm going through right now. So I get a lot of people asking me the same thing. What, wouldn't you want to be out there on the tour? Absolutely. You know, uh, you know what I feel like? I feel like that guy at the bar talking to a girl that's sitting there and the girl comes up, you have a great conversation. All of a sudden your wife and kids come. Is it time to go dad? <laughs> You're like, Oh, what? <laughs> So I feel like every time I put myself into that scenario, when I'm out on the road, it's great. And, 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 and I love and adore it, but you know, there's always that other aspect of like, I have a family and, and people that really need me also at home. So it's a really tough balance for me right now. So I'm, I'm going through that. And, you know, when, when nasty and I, you know, stopped, it was something that was going through my mind. I just didn't have the courage to actually say, Hey, listen, honestly, I really need an extra month at home. And I hope you're okay with that. I went along with it. I went to the airport. I didn't get on my flight because, uh, you know, circumstances had it that, you know, uh, the flight or the borders were closed in Germany and just by the luck of God, I guess in a way, because I love her to death. So I, I wanted to make the flight, but um, that transitioned into me not making the flight and us having a discussion. And then ultimately both of us kind of agreed on the fact that I was, I think not committed to spending five months of my life, question mark, possibly more out on the road away from my family. So that was something that came up and I realized that too. And I've been realizing that a lot more lately. So do I love the travel? Is there things that are in the horizon? Yes, for sure. But I make it a point to make my family first because, you know, that's something that 
realistically, I, I haven't had even as long as I can think back, you know, when I was 11, 12, 13, I've just gone. So it's just, you know, I have two, I have two beautiful daughters, my wife, it just, I love them to death. So it's just, it's really hard because I love tennis. I love traveling. I love working at that level. Um, but I love my family more right now. So, yeah. you well know, said, man. That's, I don't uh, Yeah. It's kind of touching there, Rob, you know, it's, uh, and, <laughs> oh, and <thanks>. relatable <laughs> and relatable for me too. Right. I'm uh, about the same age and yeah. Family comes first. Whereas 10 years ago, didn't have to think about these things, you know, you just put yeah. yourself first all the time, but Hey, you're yeah. only 41. So when you're 51 or 61, I mean, you can reclaim that professional coaching career. You well, know, I'm definitely not going to, yeah, I'm definitely not, uh, I'm definitely not counted out. I just, if I could make a commitment to a shorter amount of weeks or give my time to where it wasn't as committed as a 40 week project, um, I'm completely open, but at the moment, those types of, you know, the players that come to me, they really want a full commitment. And I totally respect that. And, and so for me also transitioning, I'm at the point where I'm also transitioning to think about what is next for the next 20 years, because I love tennis. I I love, you know, coaching, but where does that leave me? Because my entire life has been spent traveling. So, you know, you work your whole life, you get really good at something and then all of a sudden you reach this point where it's like, yeah, you, guess what? You got a wife and two kids. So now rethink the whole project, <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, now what do I do? So I'm going through that transition now where there are some really cool projects that um, I'm sure on the next podcast or whatever, you will we, you'll want to be talking about these things. And these are things that I'm super excited about, but they're in the early stages of creating things that are more you know, home rooted. And, um, and of course, traveling will always be a part of me. So I'll be doing that. But I just, uh, yeah, yeah, as far as a 40 week. (laughs) That's no, that's a major commitment. We'll have to check in when we uh, see new projects from you. We wanted to finish uh, today with a a little rapid fire segment, just a few rapid fire questions for you, you answer them, suppose as quickly as you can. Um, Start off, who would be your favorite personality on the tennis circuit, man or woman? Osaka. I like it. She's dominant right now. I've always, uh, the reason why I say that is I've, I've actually always liked her years before she ever burst on and became anything. I called her out long before that happened. And I really liked her unique personality. It's like an introvert, but extrovert. very funny and you wouldn't know that unless you spent time with her in person so yeah i'm quite fond of that who's the funniest player you've come across on the atp and wta i'm gonna say den i just keep saying the same thing but dennis has quite the sense of humor that that uh got me that a lot of the time he tries to kind of hide a little bit and keep to himself but uh he's a funny kid um for your playing days or maybe still now what is or what was your best shot or weapon on the court i think speed uh, you know take away the game and, and and you have you know footwork and that was probably the biggest strength that i ever had and was and, and playing super they gave me the ability to play really early who's a player that's maybe off people's radar that you think will one day win a grand slam 
the kid that I'm coaching right now that doesn't know it, that's sleeping on the couch. (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to drop his name. (laughs) No. Um, You've obviously traveled so much. Favorite place you've visited? Oh, Japan. Okay. Love it. Okay, this is my last rapid fire one because our Zoom is going to turn into a pumpkin in about four minutes. If you were stranded on a desert island with three other tennis players or personalities, who would you pick to, to be stranded there with? Does my wife and two daughters count? Because they kind of play tennis. No, that's way too easy. You got to go outside the, uh, the obvious there, Rob. <laughs> um, Andre Agassi, uh, John McEnroe, and I'd love to see Gabriella Sabatini. Oh, that's a nice, that's a nice mix. I really like that. Last Why one not, for right? you. Yeah. Um, not a 40 week commitment, but say if you could pick any player in the world to coach and work alongside for just one day, who would it be? Layla Fernandez. Oh, wow. It was just a name that was brought up recently. So I think she's got a lot of game and, and I'm trying to stick to the Canadian, uh, roots now not i'm trying not to stray away too far from home now i i, I find as that, you're uh, down in the united states at the moment i should say <laughs> but i'm with canadians okay and okay. i'm waiting right. i'm waiting for kayla cross she's another canadian from the junior uh team I've that's going to be yeah. coming down yeah she's going to be coming down. i've been working that's her brother is here right now i'm here with her brother but i've been working with them for quite some time but she'll be coming down soon but uh yeah trying to keep a canadian i can't express like it's just I've done the whole living out of a suitcase everywhere else. So this has been great. Yeah. Trying to get Canadian tennis, to, you know, to the top. Well, Rob, thanks for taking the time while you're, you're down there. We love having you on. And uh, I feel like we could have you on again tomorrow and have all sorts of fresh questions and, and right. great discussion <laughs> with you, man. Cause uh, you know, I used the word unique earlier and I know you were kind of worried what direction I was going there, but uh, you're a great personality to have on man. And uh, you know, the tennis world's better for, uh, for having you in it. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Very much. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Always, always a pleasure. And uh, we look forward to sharing the episode and look forward to seeing uh, your future projects down the line. We'll, uh, we'll keep in touch. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. And Rob Steckley, not our only guest uh, for this week. I also spoke to author of a new Roger Federer book. And the title of the book is Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons in 10 acts. Uh, Here's my interview this week with author and journalist Dave Seminara. Roger Federer is set to make his first return to the court since January of last year, and he'll be competing in Doha, returning from a pair of surgeries to his right knee, a tournament he has won three times. And uh, today we're joined by an author who's written a book about Roger Federer. Uh, Freelance journalist and author Dave Seminara has written the book Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons in 10 acts. Dave, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy to have you. And uh, this is a very interesting book. Uh, I do admit I haven't read it yet, but just sort of glossing over what you've done here. I understood you you took a trip and you're an avid traveler. So you went to Switzerland in 2019 and Roger Federer actually won the tournament there at the Swiss Indoors in Basel. Um, Did you go to Switzerland with the intention of writing a a book about Federer or, or, or how did this all really come about? 
No, it, it really started to come out about just as a little treat to myself because I had a um, sort of a, a long illness that kept me away from playing tennis for a couple of years. And I didn't know whether I'd ever be able to play tennis again. And when I started getting a little bit better, I started first, I was able to walk well enough and then I could ride bikes. And then I thought, wow, I'm close to being able to play tennis. And then I thought, I don't want to just start playing tennis again in a normal, just in my normal neighborhood courts. I felt like I deserved a little treat. I wanted to have do something special. So Federer has been my tennis idol for many years. And I really thought I owe it to myself. I want to do something special and I want to come back to tennis on courts where Roger played in Switzerland. And I want to see him play at his hometown tennis tournament where he's a ball boy. And so, you know, I'm married and I have two kids and I am a freelance writer. I make a living as a writer. So I can't just, you know, go off for a 10 day holiday or two week holiday and say, hey, honey, I'm going for a vacation. Good luck to you. Uh, enjoy screwing around with the kids for the next couple of weeks. So I, I, I really needed to turn this into a business trip. So I started pitching editors and um, I've been a writer uh, for the New York Times travel section for many years. So I pitched the travel editor of the New York Times. I'm just doing an article about this. And I thought, all right, if I can get it one, at least one article commission that'll pay for part of my trip, then I can legitimately call this a business trip and not just a vacation, right? Uh -huh. So that was kind of the, that was kind of the initial deal. And once they gave me the green light to write an article about this, I thought, all right, we're off to the races. I'm doing this. And um, once I got there and I really started delving into all this Federer research and meeting all these people connected to Roger and traveling to all the places where he um, went to school and where he lived and where he practices and even where he got married and meeting so many interesting people like uh, this priest who was also named Federer who baptized his children and accidentally bumming into all kinds of strange people like his dentist and other <laughs> other strange happens that I thought okay this is I have way too much good stuff here and I want to write a whole book so maybe two three days into the trip I realized I didn't want to just write an article about this I wanted to write um, a full book about it. Yeah, and uh, what seems so interesting, I guess, about, about the book, I mean, there's been many tennis books, obviously, written in the past uh, about your Federers, Nadals, the superstars of the sport, and, and normally it's more of kind of a career highlight pack. We get an overview of how they got into the sport, um, when they kind of took off in, in their careers, but this feels, it feels a lot different. I, I suppose in your research or just gathering all these stories, um, what did you take away from the type of person maybe Roger Federer is. I, I think we have sort of this idea, you know, he's kind of this, this very classy gentleman type of mm -hmm. guy who he, he's kind of walks on air. It feels like when he enters the room, but we don't really know what the Roger is. What do, I guess, what do people there in Switzerland that you visited have the impression of him? Well, this is what was, you know, really sort of fun about my trip is that it is not a Federer biography. What it is, is, um, some people have said that it's somewhat of a new genre and that it's sort of a tennis travelogue, which perhaps there have been other tennis travelogues written before. I don't know, but uh, this could be the first one. I don't know. But in traveling in Roger's footsteps, I did learn a lot about him and also about the way, the way Swiss people treat athletes and celebrities and heroes. And it's very, very different than the way we treat athletes and heroes, I think, in the U.S. and also in Canada and other, other Western countries. They're much more reserved towards, uh, they're not really into hero worship the way that we are. So I think that his relationship with Switzerland and the Swiss people is very different than perhaps what I expected. But in regards to, the, you know, sort of the first part of your question about what sort of person he is and such, um, 
you know, not that I was looking as a Federer fan to find negative things about him, but I certainly did not find any in meeting so many people and traveling to many of the tennis clubs where he practices and where he learns. Just little tidbits you pick up from people. Like, for example, at, um, at one of the clubs where he practices frequently, um, you know, I asked them, so what's it like when Roger comes to the club? Is it crazy? How does he act? What is he like? I said, you know, do, does, do his handlers call to schedule his courts? And they said, no, no, no. He calls himself. And I said, really? Does he ask you to sort of clear the whole place? It can be empty. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. He, he just has one court, doesn't ask for anything special. And I said, really? Well, what happens after he leaves and how does he arrive? Is there a big entourage and does he leave immediately? No, no. He said he, just, he comes just like anybody else. He drives in his own car. Um, and afterwards, sometimes he stays for lunch. Like in Switzerland, one of the really nice things about tennis clubs is um, almost all of them have a restaurant or a cafe. And at a couple of them, they said, oh, no, he frequently, you know, will come like late morning and then he'll have lunch here afterwards. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to have their photo taken with him or anything like that, he's very cool about that. Um, at one of the clubs where he practices frequently, they told me that um, after one full week of practicing at the club on his last day before he was leaving for Madrid, which was the next tournament he was playing, he, he asked the club, uh, you know, the club owner, he said, so how much did he had just he hadn't eaten there because this was a very small club with no restaurant. They only had coffee and said at the end of the week so how much do um i owe you for the coffee that um i had this week <laughs> that guy's like wow it's amazing roger thought roger thought that we were going to charge him for the coffees we have in our like keurig machine yeah. um but yeah everyone said that you know he's just a really you know he's a very humble guy and he doesn't have a huge ego and the other thing too is that he's left alone so he really likes switzerland i mean he could live anywhere let's face it the guy has you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and he could live anywhere. He didn't go to Monte Carlo like many of the other players like Djokovic and many other players. He hasn't seeking and sought a tax haven to base himself in like so many other rich people and celebrities. He really loves Switzerland. And one of the reasons for that is he is largely left alone. You don't see lots of RF hats there. You don't see Federer memorabilia everywhere. I had an RF hat and as you read in the book, um, I started wearing it in the beginning of my trip and I started to sort of almost feel conspicuous having it on, to be honest with you, because really? the Swiss aren't the Swiss aren't really into that sort of thing. Wow. And although, of course, he's absolutely loved there, um, he's also left alone, which I think he really likes. Yeah, and I, I can understand him having a great appreciation for that and probably why he has, uh, you know, such a tie to his roots and is comfortable in Switzerland. Uh, of course, while you were there, he was also playing, as I mentioned, the Swiss Indoors Tournament, which uh, is one that he's dominated through the course of his career. And uh, yes. I gather you would have had an opportunity to speak with Roger. If, you know, you're compiling initially, you thought it was an article and, and it's becoming this this novel and travelogue. Um what did you kind of use that as an opportunity to ask him, you know, because obviously most journalists are maybe asking him about his, his tennis. Uh, how did you approach that? Sure. Yeah. No. And just to clarify too, it's, it is nonfiction. It's entirely nonfiction. So it's not yeah. a novel, but um, I did have a chance to ask him a lot of questions at the tournament, which was great because I was the only accredited reporter at the tournament whose first language was English. So all the okay. other reporters wanted to ask him questions in other languages. Yeah. And they, after each match, they always started with English. So I was lucky. I was the only guy with my hand up wanting to ask questions in English. So that was great. It was like a privilege. I was first uh, every time. And I usually got to ask him a couple questions too. But um, for anybody who has a chance to return to travel to this tournament, any tennis fan, once borders start to open back up again and North Americans are welcome in, in, in Europe, I think actually Canadians are already welcome in Switzerland, aren't they? I, I believe so. Um, yeah, yeah I, I believe Canadians are already allowed in Switzerland. Americans are not. But, um, you know, this is a great tournament to travel to because it's a pretty small, intimate arena. 
Roger grew up just five minutes away from it. As I said, he was a ball boy there. His mother uh, handled media applications for the tournament. So he's deeply connected to this tournament. He always takes the ball boys out for pizza, buys them pizza afterwards and such. And um, the atmosphere in this tournament is really, really good. And you get an idea for Swiss culture too at this tournament because people really dress up for the matches too. So it's like you go to the uh, matches in the evening and it's not like, not quite sure, you know, having grown up, I, I used to go to the Canadian Open all the time. Um, because I grew up in Buffalo and, and I think it's pretty similar here in the U S and in Canada, people wear shorts and t-shirt in the summertime to a tennis tournament. Not like that there at all. People really dress up. They wear suits. Men will have ties, women are. In, <laughs> so it's like going all, to the theater almost. Well, also, you know, almost, I mean, it really is quite an occasion. I would say that, um, for any tennis fan, especially a Federer fan, if you have a chance to travel to Switzerland, don't just go to the Swiss indoors, but also, um, you know, you could use sort of my book as a guidebook, but go to some of the tennis clubs where Roger has learned to play and really learn, you can learn a lot more about him by traveling in his footsteps and by playing in the places where Roger's played and also go see the towns where Roger owns homes, because let's face it again, Roger could build a house anywhere in the world where he wanted to. So my thought was, okay, Roger owns homes in a few different parts of the country. I want to travel to those towns because let's face it, Roger's a, a man of good taste, right? He could live anywhere and he's got a lot of money. So I really wanted to see where has this man chosen to make his life. So um, through those travels, uh, you know, for, for those who are maybe geographically challenged like myself, uh, but you're starting off in, in Basel, Switzerland, like yeah. describe us a little bit about, about your route through the country. I yeah. Sure. Let's talk, talk about a few different regions of Switzerland and, and where you might want to go if you'd like to make your own Federer pilgrimage. So Roger grew up in, in a suburb of Basel. And first of all, Basel is a great place to start your, your tour because uh, the tournament is there. That's where the Swiss Indoors is played. And Basel is a super charming city. Of course, Europe, there's many, many charming cities. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's a place that a lot of um, North Americans will skip on a tour of Europe. It's not, you know, it's not a Rome. It's not a Paris. It's not a famous place of Europe but it's an incredibly charming city. It's right on the Rhine. And it's cool because when you're based in Basel, you're, you're hugging right along the borders with, uh, with France and Germany. So in 15 minutes in one direction, you can be in Germany and 15 minutes in the other direction, you're in France. So Basel is a super charming place. Um, I would definitely spend some time there and you can visit the suburbs of Basel where Roger grew up, which is also very interesting. It's very telling um, that he did not grow up uh, wealthy too. I, and I traveled, I went to his neighborhood where he grew up. He grew up in a townhouse um, you know, an attached townhouse in a little neighborhood um, of three streets of completely identical homes, did not have, you know, like a big yard or a garage door to hit tennis balls against anything like that. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, the other areas where Roger has owned homes and properties is around the lake, uh, is around uh, Lake Zurich, which is another beautiful region. It's just uh, basically you've got the city of Zurich, obviously, which is the big city. And then you have this huge Lake Zurich, which is quite picturesque. And there's a number of little towns along Lake Zurich where Roger uh, has owned homes and has practiced. And one of them that he's building a house in right now is called Rapperswil. Uh, I definitely recommend Rapperswil. And then the, th the third sort of big Roger region is the mountains. And so the town is a town called uh, Valbella and the neighboring town is called Lenzerheide. And there's a pretty famous, not super famous, but there's a ski resort called Lenzerheide. And Roger grew up skiing in Lenzerheide. And so I think this was the inspiration of why he wanted to be, his primary residence the last several years has been in this small town called Lenz, uh, uh, Valbella, which is right near the Lenzer Heide Ski um, Resort. And that's an absolutely beautiful region and also very, very small. And it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's absolutely a gorgeous part of it. And if you like scenic train rides also, that's, yep. a, that's a wonderful part of the country uh, where Roger's primary residence is to take some absolutely beautiful train rides. Wow. 
Uh, well, that, that's certainly going on my bucket list. Um, in, ter in terms of Roger Federer and, and you, you mentioned, you know, you grew up as a tennis player and this trip for you was a uh, return to the sport, so to speak, after injuries. And we've seen Roger Federer do the same. Um, I, I guess what makes Federer so important to you uh, as a tennis player and an inspiration and, and how did he kind of serve in your comeback to the sport? Yeah, well, I've been a Federer fan sort of for a long time, but I've just gotten a little bit more and more appreciative of him as he's gotten older, let's say. Uh -huh. um, when he was absolutely completely dominant in like 2004, 2005, 2006 in his real heyday, you know, I, I obviously admired him and liked him a lot, but I felt like over the years, I've just sort of grown with him and I've just become to appreciate him more and more, even more so when his majors and when his triumphs are more infrequent you know what i mean you sort of yep. almost enjoy them more uh -huh. you savor them more now when he wins when, when he wins a tournament because you know you know that his time is limited you know that you know that he may not just keep on winning and especially you know in 2017 when he won the australian open really sort of surprisingly after a few years of not winning any majors and when people thought okay roger is done he might hang around the sport but he's not going to be winning any more titles yep. and then when he came back and won the australian open in, in january of 2017 that was really when i was really starting to get quite ill with this autoimmune disease that i have and um, at that time uh, this disease was bothering me so much that i really couldn't sleep and if you can't sleep having the australian open on in the middle of the night is a pretty good consolation that's true so i was staying up all night during that tournament and i was in a lot of pain at that time and being able to watch roger in the middle of the night just unexpectedly win the tournament and beating nadal in the final it just sent my you know admiration for federer sort of through the roof and i guess since that time i've really liked and appreciated him even more but not just as a tennis player and you know admiring his strokes and his movement and all that. But I really just admire him also as a person, the way that he treats his fans, the respectful way he is towards media. Um, I like the way that he carries himself and I like the way that he wears his heart on his sleeve, the way that sometimes he cries after he wins a tournament like he did when I was in, when I was in Basel for the Swiss indoors, he won the tournament for a 10th time. And, you know, some players, you know, might be so jaded at that level of their career. They'd be like, well, it's an ATP 500. Who cares? Oh, right. no, he cares. I mean, he he um, when the ball boys started running around and doing sort of their um, like they ran in sort of like a little formation uh, yeah. and, and he started to get emotional. You could see he was choking up even before he had to give his talk. And um, he broke down in tears. He was so sort of emotional about winning his hometown tournament for a 10th time. You could tell. Um, that it means so much to him. I mean, he doesn't take winning for granted. He doesn't take playing tennis for granted. And I guess that's one thing about my book that I really have learned through my journey too, is that I grew up thinking that I'd be able to play tennis for my whole life. But then I realized after getting a couple of different illnesses that uh, you can't take tennis for granted. And the ability to walk out on the tennis court and compete, um, you think you're going to be able to do that forever, but you might not be able to. So I feel like I appreciate tennis so much more now having not been able to play for a period of years and now now i am able to play again and i think roger is he hasn't gone through those illnesses but he has had injuries and i think he really appreciates tennis too and i don't think he takes it for granted no i i don't think he takes it for granted either especially at this stage of his career and uh, I, i'm sure it's going to be meaningful for him getting back on the court in doha as well i have, I have one final question here this is sure. not a roger Federer question or it's not not a question about the book rather um but I, I was curious about this column of yours because i actually recall reading it myself a handful of years ago uh you wrote it back in 2009 it was about uh the documented longest recorded rally in professional tennis history. 
Uh, now, as a tennis player myself, I, I, you know, have certain vague memories of very long exchanges I've been in and probably can't pinpoint anything being many shots longer than, say, 30 to 40 strokes. Uh, this rally was 643 shots uh, between a pair of women's players. How did you come about this story, this rally, this match and, and the players involved because it's so fascinating and, and very odd to, to picture two players hitting a tennis ball back and forth for 30 consecutive minutes. Yes, it is really an interesting story. Thanks for asking that one. It's really one of my favorite stories. I wrote that story in 2009 for the New York Times and I still get asked questions about it. And I love this story because I love tennis history and I love forgotten tennis history. Uh -huh. So what happened was I was at the, um, the tournament in Mason, Ohio. And I think it was two, I think it was 2009 or 2008, shortly before that. And there was a rally between Julian Beneteau and Andy Murray that lasted 53 shots. And I was in the press uh, conference afterwards and someone said, hey, was that the longest tennis rally ever? And then someone else looked it up and was like, oh, no, not even close. There was one that was 643 shots. And we we're all like, what? 643 shots? I said, well, Gene Hatter. And Vicky Nelson Dunbar in 1984. And we we're all like, wait, what? Who, who the heck are they? These are obviously not famous players. And this was at a tournament of Virginia Slims event in, in Richmond, Virginia in 1984. And so everyone else was kind of just having a laugh over this. But after I you know, got home from the tournament, immediately I was like, I'm going to write about this. I must find who are these two women? How yep. did this happen? Because the 25 year anniversary of this was coming up too. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to dig out that tennis history and to really find out the story behind that 25 years later? Uh, but the thing is, these two women are not famous at all, and there was no video recording of it. The match wasn't televised anywhere, and it was difficult to find these two women. One of them, though, the, the lead that I got on uh, Vicki Nelson Dunbar was, I found out that her son at the time, who was like 10 years old at the time, was a nationally ranked junior. So I found her by her son's name, and um, he is actually now, he is on the ATP Futures circuit now, this guy, this is years later. Wow. But um, I found his, uh, his elementary school and I called his school, which is a highly unorthodox thing to do. But I said, listen, you have a student, I believe he was in like the third or fourth grade or fifth grade at the time. And I said, could you pass a, a message on to his mother? Uh, that uh, There's a journalist who would really like to talk to him about this 643 shot rally. <laughs> And so sure enough, a few days later, I got a call from Vicki Nelson and she agreed to be interviewed. And then Gene Hepner was even more of a detective work. There were five or six Gene Hepners in the telephone book scattered around the United States. And there was no phone numbers listed, only addresses. So I sent snail mail letters to five or six addresses, five or six Gene Hepners around the USA and thinking hopefully one of them is the right one. And luckily the woman, she wrote me back and I, I was able to find those two. And then the question that I had for them, though, that they couldn't quite resolve was, how do you know it was 643 shots? Because when you're playing against someone, you're not counting shots of the rally, right? So I thought, okay, this happened in Richmond, Virginia. Someone must have been there. Someone must have documented the 643 shots. So I contacted the newspaper in Richmond, Virginia, and I said, who was the sports editor of the newspaper in 1984? And they gave me the, the email address of a gentleman who had long retired, because this is you know, 25 years later. But they said he, he, he must have been there. He might remember something about it. So I contacted this guy who was the sports editor of the newspaper. And he said, yeah, that was me. I was the one who contacted, counted those shots. And I said, why were you counting 643 shots? Yeah. And he said, because you don't understand. They were having super long rallies like that the whole match. And he said, I knew it must have been breaking some kind of record. So I started counting. So it was like I had all the elements for a great story. I had found the two women who engaged in the rally. I found the guy who counted the shots. But at the time, I had just started as a freelance writer. And um I had no outlet to publish the story to. And I thought, this is a really good story. I'd like to pitch the New York Times, but I didn't know how to contact them. 
So I did the same thing there. I sent a snail mail letter to the sports department of the New York Times thinking I will never hear back from them. And I thought the story would never be published. But a day or two before the 25 year anniversary, I got a phone call from their from their sports editor saying, I just noticed your your pitch. We want to run this. And that was the start of uh, like what's turned into a 12 or 13 year freelance relationship with the Times. But um, uh, it's an incredible story. And that's one record. They say records won't be broken. That is one record that will never be broken. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm certain of that. That is a remarkable story. And I love unusual records in sports, too. And, and this is a fascinating one, 643 shot rally. And I understand the match itself went something like six hours and 30 minutes, too, which is some kind of record as well. So it was a record setting type of match and uh, was was great to read you, uh, read your documentation of it. Um, looking forward as well to, to reading your book. It's called Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons and 10 acts. I, I gather it's available now. It is available now. Yep, absolutely. Perfect. Well, uh, Dave, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, to talk about the book and give us some more insight on Roger Federer and his uh, connection to his uh, home roots in Switzerland. We really appreciate thanks. it. Thanks so much. Take care. And there you have it, my conversation with Dave Seminara and his book is now available. And um, it is interesting, Mike, I was thinking back to the fact that uh, we had Christopher Clary on our show early in the season, and he's currently working on a Roger Federer book. And Dave, who has written in the past for the New York Times, has one, which is kind of like a travel novella because he goes over to Switzerland um, to, you know, not just cover this uh, event of Roger Federer, but also kind of go to his local spots and find out a little bit more about Roger Federer, the man, and what he means to the country of Switzerland. And Originally, it was just for, you know, an article or two that he was going to get paid for, and he has enough content to write a book, um, which, which is great and sounds like a fascinating read. Yeah, it's a cool way to, to sort of tell the story and, and talk about, you know, the, the great legendary Roger Federer. And I mean, I'm sure with a player like him who's been around for so long and accomplished so much, there's like, you know, dozens of different ways that one could author a book about Roger um, I guess you and I, we're gonna have to put our books on Roger on hold because how many better <laughs> books can can come out in one calendar year? Um, mm-hmm. it, it's interesting to me that these books are, are coming out. And I mean, look, I'll read a book about a player before they've retired, no problem. But it's interesting to me that these kind of books would be coming out um, at a time when how much does Roger have left? And, and that's kind of a, a hot button topic as he returns to the ATP tour after over a year absence with injury and, and the pandemic, of course, but um, he is closer to the finish line clearly than, you know, even the middle part of his career. That's uh, pretty obvious. Um, and, and I'm sure there'll be a flood of other books that come out uh, when he does finally decide to hang up the racket as well. And, and yeah. I, I bet you, no matter when you release one of these books, they're going to do quite well just by virtue of the fact of who you're writing about and, and how many people out there would, would love to hear, um, you know, about him. Yeah, well, it's interesting now with Federer making his return to the tour. It feels a little bit like deja vu going back to all that absence in 2016 and he makes the grand return in 2017. We can't have a return like that. He's not making his return at a grand slam. You know, he, he could win Doha. I wouldn't put it past him. It's not going to be something as incredible as uh, this length, lengthy absence and a player who we didn't think we would see winning grand slams again uh, go out and win the Australian Open. But um sometimes we we have short-term memories when it comes to tennis we forget like Federer was playing some pretty fantastic tennis even going back to when he stopped playing and his last tournament at the at the front end of 2020 was a semi-finals at the Australian Open really nothing to snooze at 
Yeah, and prior to that, he had you know lost at the 2019 end of year uh, ATP finals, uh, but he beat Djokovic in straight sets in that he event. Did. So, yep. um, you know, he's talking about how the break is actually probably a good thing for him in terms of extending the the back end of his career and mm-hmm. having that break and that rare time to spend with his family and you know his kids are at ages where. I'm sure they were just over the moon to have their dad home for so much time over the course of that, that year. Um, and, and he is happy as he mentioned in press uh, the last couple of days to rejoin what he called his second family, which is the ATP tour and, and all of his fellow competitors. So I, I think this could do him some good. Um, he's, he's already mentioned how anything that happens in the next little while is not really a, a concern of his in terms of the results. Uh, yeah. that he's gearing towards Wimbledon. And to him, that'll be really when he wants to peak and have his game clicking, which is no surprise. Um, so who knows? He he could go out early. He could win the title. And and either would surprise me as little as as, as the other option, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I had a thought, actually, as he, as he makes this return in Doha. And as you said, kind of revving up his body, you know, getting used to conditions and hopefully peaking his form for Wimbledon. I, I have to wonder, this might be, uh, you know, the last that we've seen of Roger Federer playing at the French Open, playing the clay court circuit, because he made that that push, of course, in 2019. And I thought he had a fantastic clay court season. Um, he won one title, I believe, on clay. He made the semifinals of the French and, and battle Rafael Nadal there. Um, I It might be, you know, sad to say this right now because there is still career left for Roger. But what is the likelihood we ever get to see him play at the French Open again? Yeah, him playing in on clay in 2019 was such a shocker because I feel like you and I and many others have had this very conversation we're having now, which is, will we see him ever again on, on clay? Will we see him play at Roland Garros again? And uh, it was quite surprising that he really went for, you know, a pretty extended clay court swing two years ago. Um, who's to say what he's he's got in store? I, I don't think he's looking that far ahead. So I don't think he's got like a master plan that carries him through the next season. I think right now it's, you know, how does he adapt back to the tour? How does it work out with the schedule that he's planning? Uh, Wimbledon, of course, being uh, a focal point and, uh, and the U.S. Open. Because, uh, I mean, let's be honest, the fact that Nadal has tied him since he's been off in terms of the overall Grand Slam count, the fact that Djokovic has gotten so much closer, I, of course he'd love to add and, and, and increase and, and regain the lead there. Uh, he is losing one of his records on, on Monday this week, which is career uh, total weeks at, at number one with Djokovic passing him at, at 311 weeks. Um, but uh, I, I think it's a, a year by year at this point. Let's see what he can do for 2021 and then he'll evaluate it. it. It wouldn't shock me if he played it again. I think it was a bigger shock to me in 2019 when he committed to clay as much as he did. Yeah. Uh, at this point, uh, I'm ready for any surprises with Roger. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, as you said, Novak Djokovic um, overtaking that record of Roger Federer's with 311 weeks now total at world number one. And this, you know, originally when Pete Sampras set this record, which was 286, we thought, well, this is one of those unbreakable records. Roger Federer breaks it. And now Novak setting this precedent. This feels like one of those unbreakable records. And you have to think he's going to comfortably be adding on to it um, for potentially the remainder of the year. There would be a substantial work, I think, 
if if Rafa wanted to catch him, Daniil Medvedev did have an have an opportunity actually actually to get to number two in the rankings and missed it in Rotterdam. He would really have to go on a run to do this. And uh, you know, even if Novak takes a little time off because he had a, a an injury at the Australian Open, we're so used to seeing him return to the court with just a vengeance. And this is, I think, one of these records he could build and stack for quite a while. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I'm just thinking now, and this is just off the top of my head, which would be tougher for another player to um, replicate uh, the the number one weeks at number one or the Grand Slam, the overall Grand Slam count. And and I think attaining number one for as long as Novak has is perhaps, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word easy because neither <laughs> is easy, but yeah. I, I think probably more attainable just when you look at the guys who were in the top five, top 10 in this overall chase at weeks at, at number one. And, and Sampras was high up there, even though he never really had huge success at the French Open and, uh, and was never as dominant as Federer, Nadal and Djokovic in those periods that the big three were dominant for. Yvonne Lendl also, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but he was top five, I believe, in terms of time at number one. Uh, he had only uh, eight career Grand Slams. So I, I think depending on how the, the ATP evolves and, and beyond the big three, I don't believe you're going to be seeing that kind of dominance at the slams anymore. But I do still think that you could see someone come along and have a pretty extended run at, at holding on to number one or, or, or attaining a number one status for, for a bunch of weeks, even if it's not consecutive. But, you know, that being said, another remarkable achievement. And, uh, you know, we could dedicate almost a portion to every show talking about some cool record that one of the big three holds because between the three of them, you know, they pretty much got them all almost. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. And uh, one of them will be in action back this week in Doha. As we said, Roger Federer, he's won it three times before. Just wanted to mention a few of the other names that we have at the tournament. Dominic team is actually the number one seed because he did supplant Federer in the rankings by a spot. Um, Andre Rublev making a quick turnaround. He'll be playing. Denis Shapovalov is playing his first event since the Australian Open. Um, we get the classic Canadian curse. We have Vashik Pospisil facing uh, Christopher O'Connell in the first round. And a likelihood that we will see Denis versus Vashik for Shapovalov's first match, was, which is unfortunate. Um, starting on Denis, though, I, I feel like the opening to his season, he played two competitive matches at the ATP Cup. Um, he had this great five-set win over a very tough first-round opponent in Melbourne and Yannick Sinner. I thought he could maybe build some momentum off of that. Then he runs to another, runs into another Canadian and Felix Ogelius team who just played a fantastic match. So it's hard to get really a gauge on what 2021 will be like for Dennis. But uh, I want to remain hopeful and positive that we have seen some good flashes at least to start. Hey, look, Chapo has made strides forward every year that he's been a professional tennis player from that summer run in Montreal in 2017 and, and everything he's done since then. And I don't think he gets enough credit. And it's because he hasn't shown the consistency that people are perhaps hoping and expecting from him. But uh, what he's accomplished in the past four years now and at such a young age, uh, and, and especially when you consider what Canadian tennis was like before that uh, in terms of singles accomplishments, what he's done is, is pretty groundbreaking. There's so much left for him to still do and, and add to. And we all know that he still needs to mature and, and needs to rein in that exciting game that he has. I mean, the last time that we spoke with Rob Steckley, he was talking about how, you know, Dennis has a, a certain je ne sais quoi, uh, something that others don't have, I think is how Rob put it. And that's definitely true. And I think the talent 
and and all those intangibles that Dennis has are things that most other players don't and the maturity and the poise and learning how to play certain moments of matches that's something that you can learn to do and grow into but the raw talent that he has and some of those shots those are things that some players will never have so I'm I'm excited for 2021 and what it brings for Chapeau and and I don't doubt that he's going to show us another step forward it might not be as big a step as people would like but I think it's going to be another step in the right direction for him. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting the way we talk about moments of this 2020 as if there were many negative moments, and yet uh, he did briefly break the top 10. He made his first Grand Slam quarterfinal at the U.S. Open. So there, there are a lot of highlights, too, and I, I think he does set the expectations very high for himself. Um, and, you know, fans do as well, which is understandable, but we have to temper them as well and understand it is a process, and uh, he's making in- incremental improvements each season. This will be another stop for him at uh, Doha. Rotterdam, which we finished, the ABN Amro event, and Andre, Andre Rublev capturing the title. He beat Martin Fuksovic um, straight sets in the final, his eighth career title, and he has stacked up six of those now in the last calendar year and change. 14 months uh, gone by, and accumulating six titles is rather impressive. I, I watch him play, and I say, you know, he is the best hardcore hardcore player on the planet minus big three and minus Medvedev that that's my take right now I don't know if you agree or disagree well you know I like to defer to your technical expertise on things like this but what I will say is uh while that forehand seems like an all-time great shot in your estimation right now how does that shot work um when Rublev needs it the most how does that shot work in pressure moments and when is that shot then going to translate for him into success at hardcore grand slams like the Aussie Open, the US Open. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that it might just be a matter of time with Rublev, as we talked about Chapeau needing to continue to progress. Same with Rublev. But, uh, you know, until that shot translates into slam success, um, for me, I don't know if I'm ready to put something like that in, in all time great category, you know? Yeah, that, that's fair. Um, and yeah, I, I should mention, uh, I, I am very high on the Andre Rublev forehand. It feels like the, the tactic when I see players face him is keep it away from that thing because it is so powerful, just rips through the court. If you ever have an opportunity to watch his highlights actually at court view and you see the speed of this shot, it is unbelievable. Um, as for slam success, I mean, we should give him, I suppose, some credit. He's made what a handful of quarterfinals now two u.s open quarterfinals a french open quarterfinal and australian open quarterfinal it's just that next step that we'll have to see him make can he get within the final four of a slam can he make a final of a slam and that's where of course a medvedev is outclassing him and um, that's where ct pass has done a couple steps better um but he has improved i think a substantial amount over the past year and a half and you know, he, he might be the favorite in Doha, actually, if he's not too fatigued, taking a long flight from Rotterdam, he'll be a threat to win there. And his pandemic play is so impressive, as you mentioned, what he accomplished over the past year. And how many of us in our jobs and our careers can say that we performed the best we ever have over the past 12 months with everything going on, weighing yep. on your mind, all the changes to normal routine and whatnot. And so for a player to be able to play at that level with all those changes, curveballs, and, and just, you know, outside of the norm sort of experiences that, uh, that he was going through. Uh, that's pretty impressive to me. And I think, uh, Hey, if you can play that way during a pandemic, my goodness, when things settle down, uh, you know, what can he accomplish then? 
Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Felix Ojeda-Aliassime was playing in Rotterdam. Very tough opening round against Katie Shikori, who actually had a great tournament. Looked like uh, he was flashing some of his former former self that we have seen, which has been top 10, top 5 tennis in the past. He beat Felix in straight sets, and Ojeda-Aliassime seemed to be dealing with a hip injury in the second set. I think it's something minor, but he'll probably take a tournament off or two. I expect he'll be back for Miami. Just ship, uh, shifting over to the women's side, we also had a Doha great final matchup between Kvitova and Muguruza. Petra Kvita, Kvitova, 28 career titles now. She beat Garbina Muguruza 6-2-6-1. She's won three times in Doha. We kind of forget about how incredible her resume actually is. You know, I was looking into the numbers thinking, well, how many titles has Kvitova won? And 28 is a big number. It had me thinking, is she a Hall of Fame tennis player already as it stands? It's amazing you say that because I wouldn't have guessed if you had put me on the spot and said, how many titles does Kvitova have? I don't know. I think I would have guessed maybe like in the high teens, uh, not the high, not the high twenties. And that's, you know, no disrespect intended there. Uh, To me, she is a hall of fame tennis player. Um, Won Wimbledon. Clearly we all know that back in 2011 and 2014 finals of the Australian open in 2019, uh, twice a semifinalist on clay at Roland Garros as well bronze medal at the Olympic Games in Rio in 2016. Uh, and she's been a top 10 presence for the, the past decade. Uh, I mean, minus obviously that period of time that she was unable to compete after that horrific attack in her apartment. But basically, she's, she's been a mainstay top 10 presence for a decade, uh, peaking it at world number two. So to me, when you add all those things up, um, and then on top of that, not that it necessarily factors into Hall of Fame, you know, criteria, but just that she's such an awesome person, just that mm-hmm. she's persevered through such incredible challenges and, and, and done so just with, you know, incredible ease at how she came back and, and started winning again and having success again and just being able to get past, obviously, what she endured and, and had to live through. So uh, to me, you add that into the mix, but even without that, just her tennis accomplishments, to me, I, I think that's a Hall of Fame career as it stands right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and when I see her play tennis at this level, I, I think ahead uh, to Wimbledon, because when we see her play at her peak tennis, that left-handed forehand, she can really take the racket out of her opponent's hand. And when the serve is really dialed in, I think she could be a definite threat there uh, to win again. We have some events uh, this week and actually a few Canadians in the field. We remember what Layla Fernandez did um, in Mexico last year in Acapulco, uh, making a finals there. This time she'll be in Guadalajara playing. And Jeannie Bouchard is also in the field um she will open against the qualifier you know we saw her play this past week in Lyon uh tough first round loss to uh Alexander Sastovich but that makes a finals and doubles so you know there's there's not too much negativity brewing at all I, I was a little bit, a bit worried about Jeannie in her start to the season she was unable to qualify for the Australian Open this was her first event since that point and then loses first round I'm thinking this is a rocky start but you win a bunch of matches and doubles I think it it boost your confidence honestly i love when genie plays doubles because she doesn't take it too seriously clearly mm-hmm. <laughs> but she always seems to be having so much fun like regardless of who her partner is she's having a great time i remember her partnering um carolina pliskova a few years ago in toronto at the rogers cup and it seemed at the time like it was a partnership that was not necessarily forged between the two players, but more of maybe a marketing ploy because at the time Pliskova was the world number one mm-hmm. and Jeannie was the Canadian number one at the time. And uh, I, I don't believe they went deep in the draw. I think they might have won one, lost one. Uh, but she had a blast out there and the two of them were having all sorts of, you know, giggles on the court. 
And just to see someone who has had a tough go the last few years, has been under intense pressure from media and so-called tennis fans. I say so-called because anyone given Jeannie grief to me is not a true tennis fan, um, <laughs> at least not a true Canadian tennis fan. And uh, so to see her having fun on the court like that is fantastic. And it can only bode well in terms of, I mean, I've always been a big proponent of, of the singles players who also play doubles because I think it can only help you. Yeah, I think it could sharpen your game. We've seen what it, what it's done for Vashik Pospisil, for example, on the men's side. Uh, she was partnered with uh, Olga Danilovic. They took out the number two seed and then uh, fell to the top seed um, in a super breaker, 10-7. So they were right there as well. Very competitive in that final, which is great to see. And will be great to see Leila Fernandez back on the court. We talked about how brutal a draw she had at the Australian Open getting Elise Mertens first round. So uh, hopefully she can make some noise this week in Mexico. Uh, we have to talk about about Bianca Andreescu um, because I, I don't know if I want to fully call it a setback. I, I want to say this is precautionary, but uh, she did have a reported leg issue that has sent her out of a few events, including Doha and Dubai. I'm hopeful she can get back and return and play in Miami. And I did read a quote from her coach, Sylvain Bruno, we've of course had on the program before. He said, this is not a situation where her injuries resurfaced or a new injury surfaced. We had a 15 month hiatus from tennis for Bianca, all these injuries, all these issues. She finally comes back. She wins one match in Australia. Then she goes over, plays another tournament. And she was involved in all these long three setters, long, difficult matches, um, finally losing to Boscova. Maybe a break is just what's the doctor ordered right now. I almost don't want to say anything about Bianca Andreescu on this podcast <laughs> anymore. And don't take that the wrong way if you're listening. We love Bianca. We've had great chats with her in the past, but I, I don't want to jinx it. I, I don't want to, I don't want to guess anymore or, or even, you know, uh, you know, yeah, I don't even want to, I don't even want, I don't even know what to say right now because yeah. Bianca and injuries, um, it's just been, you know, it's so well-documented. Everyone's well, well aware of what she's been through the last couple of years um, that, uh, that, that I don't want to talk about it for fear of, of jinxing or, um, you know, what good can come of speculating. So at this point, just hoping that everything is, is okay, that it's a short term setback, that they're being cautious and why not be cautious. Um, yep. And there, it's not like there's been a ton of WT events anyways. So take it slow, wait, you know, uh, build up for the right moments of the year. Um, but uh, yeah, my goodness, I'm, I'm almost afraid to say her name anymore for fear of what, what may come next. Yeah, the ranking is safe for now. She's still inside that top 10 uh, at the moment. And I will say this as a positive, um, that she did do a live virtual workout with Rogers a couple of weeks ago. So that tells me if she's showing herself virtually to anybody for free who wants to sign up and do a workout with Bianca. My mother-in-law, my mother-in-law <laughs> did the workout with Bianca. There actually. you go. Okay. Okay. And you know, she looked surely fit enough to do and lead a workout. That tells me she's going to be fine. Um, this is not a serious setback, um, fingers crossed. And I'm, I'm hopeful she, she can get to the clay season very healthy and then have a smooth transition there where you're not play, playing on these painful, uh, difficult hard courts, it, at least is my hope for now. Yeah, I, I got to give one more shout out to my mother-in-law who does sometimes listen to our podcast, even though she doesn't play tennis or watch tennis, but she did the Bianca workout and she wow. said to me afterwards that she was a little concerned for Bianca because they were doing like all these squats or something like that. And Bianca after the set was like, oh man, I'm really feeling that burn. And my mother-in-law <laughs> who's in her 60s was like, I'm feeling just fine. So I, you know, but she's in great shape too, I should say. So okay, okay, maybe listening, you know. Yeah. 
Maybe she should have been, maybe she should have had a career in tennis. Who knows? <laughs> there you go. Um, but, you know, fingers crossed for Bianca. She won't be back, but we do have Layla, as I said, playing in Guadalajara. Same with Jeannie Bouchard and a couple Canadians in Doha on the men's side, Bastrick Pospisil and Dennis Shapovalov. And great news uh, for us as well for next week's episode. We've already locked in someone who is a fantastic former player and also has a podcast of her own. Yeah, former world number five on the WTA and the host of the Real DNA podcast, uh, Slovakia's Daniela Hantikova is going to come back to join us again, talk about her podcast and some of the players she's talked to recently on it, uh, reminisce a bit about her career, and and she's a tennis analyst as well, so we'll get her thoughts on the 2021 season and and uh, and see what her takes are. So, you know, great always to have a, a player like that, former Grand Slam finalist, uh, back on the show. We hope you tune in and, and check us out next week. And we thank us, uh, Dave Seminara, and of course, uh, Coach Rob Steckley for joining us. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.